please open up your Bible this morning to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 8 and read down through verse 19 here in a few minutes. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 19. Um, if you are not aware, maybe you're visiting today or haven't been here the last few weeks, but we've begun a new series as we are uh, taking a, a verse-by-verse exegetical journey through the book of Genesis. And we've entitled this sermon series, Foundations. There is a, a famous scene in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and Cowardly Lion have come back from completing a mission that the wizard gave them to go and to get the broom of the Wicked Witch. And they come back and they present the broom. They think that's going to be payment for them to be able to receive what they need. And they get there and the wizard is, they're in awe of the wizard as they were before. There's this smoke and this fire and these sounds and, and, and they're frightful. They're, they're correspondingly afraid of all of their hearing. And, but then the wizard is bested by a little dog. In, in, the, in the movie and the book, the dog runs over. In the book, he, the do, Toto knocks over a screen. In the movie, he pulls back a curtain. And when the curtain is pulled back, it turns out the wizard isn't this explosive, all-powerful, mighty being, but rather is an old man, a feeble, old, weak man. Now, the guy who wrote Wizard of Oz, Frank Baum, with that scene, he, he was making a statement about what he thought, a not-so-subtle statement about what he thought about God, his view of who God really was or is. Now, there's a story in the Bible that Dima read for us earlier where the, the curtain is pulled back, but just a little bit. The curtain is pulled back for us. And unlike the wizard, even a mere glimpse of the true God is so shocking to the human senses that to see him would kill you. But Moses asked nonetheless in the passage that Dima read, he wanted to see God's glory, and God graciously shows Moses his goodness by allowing his back to pass before him. And in doing so, God also, as we saw, declares his name. To declare his name, Yahweh, means that God was declaring his character, his essence, his nature. So I want to, before we get into the Genesis passage, I want to read just a little portion of that again, the Dima read, because I think it's essential to us as we go through the Genesis passage today. Exodus 34, I'm going to begin in verse 5 and just read a couple of verses. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And again, Dima reminded us, us of this last week. If you see them in capitals, I don't like the fact that ProPresenter doesn't put the word Lord in capitals from the Old Testament like that. You see Lord in capitals, it's representing the divine name, Yahweh. So he proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so there we have the name. The covenant name of God, Yahweh, declared and exegeted, announced and elucidated. But as the name is, but as that name is proclaimed, and we read these words, we're left with a dilemma. How can Yahweh, how can God, the God whom Moses had brought the Israelites out of Egypt to worship, how can he both forgive sin and yet not clear the guilty? That's the question of the ages. For when the curtain is pulled back, all men stand exposed before a holy God. Because all men are sinners. So the answer to how a holy God can forgive sin yet not clear the guilty, well, Demer talked about it in his prayer. But we see the first glimpses of it in Genesis chapter 3. So please stand if you would as we read Genesis 3 verses 8 through 19. 8 through 19. I was originally going to take us through verse 24 
and I, I just can't get there, can't get that far today. So we're going to stop at verse 19 and, and hit the rest of chapter 3 next week. <clears throat> now, as you're there and you have this passage of Scripture before you, let me remind you that um, Moses is writing this book of Genesis to the Israelites so they might know who God is, who this God is who's rescued them out of Egypt and who they have been set apart to worship and to serve. And he has, he's already shown himself in the, in the creation account of being a, the, the self-existent, sovereign, omnipotent, superior, supreme God of the universe, the king of, the ki- king of kings. But we also saw that he created man unique and special in his image. And then we saw that as image bearers of God, that man was created to be to be in relationship, to have community. So God gave man the gift of marriage. And we saw the complementary roles in marriage. And then last week, we saw that when man and wife did not fulfill their roles, their complementary roles of marriage, that man actually fell into sin. And Satan came as the deceiver in the form of the serpent, deceiving man. So this is now after the fall. Adam and Eve have both partaken of the fruit that they were prohibited to take part of. And this is after the fall, beginning in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you, Above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly shall you, you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children." Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father who does indeed forgive transgression and sin and iniquity, but but who by no means clears the guilty, we come to you this morning and we are reminded from this text that we are such sinners and we are mere dust. Oh, Heavenly Father, this sin and this passage help us to see this morning, this is our sin, not just figuratively, but that Adam, as our representative head, committed these sins and we all committed them in him. So God, help us to be cut to the heart By today's text, give us the grace to repent. So, Lord, we need ears to hear. I need a mouth to speak. Pray that you keep my voice strong and keep me from coughing. And pray, Lord, that you give us all the grace to hear your word and have our hearts transformed by it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I first want to remind you of something very important that Deemer showed us last week. Namely, that in chapter 2... When the story zooms in, because we have this general story in verse 1, and then it zooms in in, 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 I mean in chapter 1, and then it zooms in in chapter 2, it zooms in on God's relationship with man. 
Moses begins in chapter 2 to use the covenant name of God. The, the name that's mentioned in Exodus 34, Yahweh. So, God, so Moses begins by the inspiration of God to use that name in chapter 2. But during the temptation, the serpent ref, refers to God simply as Elohim. The more, the more generic name for God, ignoring the covenant name, almost as if he, he was trying to get Eve to forget God's covenant love and, and, and the covenant that, that she and Adam had entered into. But then after the fall, after the snake has done his damage, in the very first verse of today's text, verse 8, chapter 3, that covenant name of God returns. Now why is that fact important? Well, first we need to know that in chapter 2, specifically in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, God does indeed enter into a binding covenant with mankind. It's called by theologians the covenant of works or the Edenic covenant. All the essential parts of the covenant are there. Two parties, a legally binding set of provisions, the promise of blessings for obedience, and the condition for obtaining those blessings. Now, lest you wonder if this was actually a covenant, Hosea 6, verse 7, speaking of Israel, has these words to say, quote, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So later in redemptive history, Israel will transgress the covenant, and God says in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, that they transgressed the covenant just like Adam had transgressed the covenant. So there was an Edenic covenant, and it was transgressed. Adam, along with Eve, bought Satan's lie, doubted God's word, questioned God's covenant faithfulness, and then broke the covenant. And so here in today's first verse, <coughs> the first verse after the fall, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> we are reminded of the covenant as that covenant name is used again. We're reminded of the covenant as Yahweh arrives. And yes, as Deemer stated last week, in his covenant love and faithfulness, he does arrive now on the scene to seek man. But just as Exodus 34, we see the justice and the love of God mingled, so too here in today's text, he's not just coming to seek man, he's also arriving as the covenant judge. He's coming, coming to judge man. The God of steadfast love is coming now in verse 8 also as the God who is the judge of the covenant. And so in today's text, we see covenant love and covenant justice intermingled just as we do in Exodus 34. Now I believe that the structure of today's text was laid out by Moses, obviously through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to help us see what happens when man breaks covenant with God. A covenant is a legally binding arrangement. So what happens when the covenant is broken is that there must be a trial. And so what we have here is the trial of Adam. Adam is being put on trial. And there are three acts in this trial. Three acts in this courtroom scene, if you will. Act one is the judge's arrival in verse eight. And then act two is the judge's interrogation where he asks Adam and Eve questions. Verses 9 through 13. And then finally, Act 3 is the judge's sentence, the verdict, which is verses 14 through 19. And in each of these, one of these different acts of the courtroom drama, we see the effects of sin brought to light. Like, like evidence brought before a judge exhibits. And we see the sinful nature demonstrated in all of the, these different acts of the, of the passage today. So let's begin with Act 1, the judge's arrival. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, <clears throat> I do not think that this translation is as straightforward as it may first appear. The questions you have is, what is this sound of the Lord? And why is he coming at the cool of the day? The traditional interpretation of this text is that God is arriving on the scene for some customary stroll through the garden with Adam and Eve during the evening breeze. But is that really, really what's happening here? I don't think so. And I think that the text itself points to something different happening. <coughs> remember, remember the context. Adam and Eve have just 
broken covenant with the infinitely holy God of the universe. God knows this, and God is coming to deal with it. For the first time ever, Adam and Eve are about to see the justice of God on display. So are we, are we to believe that, that this momentous era in redemptive history just happens to coincide incidentally with God's evening stroll? Or is this coming, is the very fact that he's coming and the way he's coming communicating something to us? So when they hear the sound of the Lord, I don't think this is referring to the ruffling of leaves or, or the snapping of twigs as God is out for an evening walk. That word sound, which in the Hebrew is the word kol, that word sound is also translated in many places in the Old Testament, voice. The voice of Yahweh. The voice of the Lord. Often in the Old Testament, that, that voice of the Lord phrase, kol of Yahweh, simply refers to God's commandments which are to be obeyed. But sometimes that phrase is used of a thunderous sound that accompanies a revelation of God's glory or of his power or most importantly in our context of God coming in judgment. And so we see with the coal of the Lord, we see it in various places used like that. Including when the Israelites were at the base of Mount Sinai and they're so fearful when they hear the, the coal of the Lord. They can't even stand before this sound and, and they ask Moses to intercede for them because they're so frightened by the coal of the Lord. So I think it's wise that as Yahweh's covenant has just been transgressed, not to view the sound of the Lord as anything less than his thunderous arrival on the scene. Prior to sin, I think that God's powerful arrival would have left Adam and Eve in, in worshipful, reverential awe. But now, in their sinful state, it leaves them in utter terror and dread. And that's what the coal of the Lord does. If you have time, go read Psalm 29. It's David's poetic, uh, um, poetic uh, explanation, if you will, of this coal of the Lord. In that whole psalm, you just see the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. And, and in that psalm, you, you see its thunderous power. But I think there's even more than that. As we continue here, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now that last phrase, cool of the day, is one of those interpretive holdovers, I believe, from the King James. That unfortunately hides the literal words. I get frustrated with the ESV sometimes because they claim to be literal translation, but there are times when they go for an interpretive translation, and cool of the day is an interpretive translation because literally the word is wind of the day. Now, it makes sense, it's understandable that, it, that you would call it the cool of the day if one thinks this text is merely about God showing up for his daily stroll with the first couple. If that's what you think this is about, then, okay, well, wind of the day, that must refer to the time of the day when there's some, a nice breeze. But the word translated cool, okay, which is rawach in the Hebrew, okay, in every other instance, every single other instance in the, New in the Old Testament is translated as either wind, spirit, or breath. And since that word is used interchangeably as wind and spirit, it was, it was most immediately used here by Moses in Genesis 1, verse 2, when we, see, we read of the, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And so I believe what we have here is the Spirit of God showing up again, but in judgment, probably accompanied by a violent physical wind. Just as with Job in Job 38, 1, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. I think this arrival of God puts Hurricane Matthew to shame. So when people say, oh, I just wish I could be like Adam and Eve and walk with God in the cool of the day, I said, no, you don't. Not in your sinful state, you don't. The one behind the powerful sounds and the sights is no feeble old man. He is the covenant judge king of the universe and he has arrived 
So with the judge's arrival, let me go ahead and bring up your notes. With the judge's arrival, we, we see the first exhibit of man's sinfulness. With the judge's arrival, we see how mankind's relationship with God is ruined. Mankind's relationship with God is ruined. <coughs> we read here that when Adam and his wife heard and felt the thunderous arrival of the judge, verse 8, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now first, just notice the irony here of them hiding in the very place where they've transgressed the law amongst the trees. Trees play an important part in redemptive history. But for what we want to focus on today, let's just focus on the fact that sinful man's natural response to the revelation of God's justice is to hide. Sin's, man's natural response when the justice of God is on display is to simply hide. The relationship between God and man is broken now. Evil has been set loose in man's heart. And now man reels in shame and in guilt and in a desire of self-protection. In this state, man does not seek God, nor does man even desire to seek God. Instead, he runs and he hides. This is why it's foolish to think that people today are seeking God. They're not. There is no such thing as a seeker of God. All sinners, unless you've been redeemed, all people born into this natural state of sin that comes through Adam's failure, all people naturally run from God, hide from God. They don't go to God. They don't seek him. Romans 3 confirms that for us. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All men know instinctively, as Romans 2 taught us, and the, the verse was at the end of the Judge of the Secrets, all men know instinctively that they are at odds with their Creator, and all men instinctively try to cover it up and hide. Hide from the gaze of one another and hide from the gaze of a holy God. Earlier we saw in last week's passage that Adam and Eve tried to reconcile their guilt by sewing together some fig leaves to hide and cover their shame. But they know that their man-made remedy is not sufficient. For the moment that God shows up, they run and they hide. Sinners today try a thousand other fig leaves to deal with their sin. The fig leaf of good works. The fig leaf of success. The fig leaf of career. The fig leaf of diversion. But when the righteous judge shows up on the scene, the vanity and the uselessness of our fig leaves is revealed. For as Hebrews 4.13 says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We all have an accounting coming. And we are naked before that judge. No man-made deed can cover up our guilt and our shame. And so Adam and Eve, knowing that their man-made remedy is useless and not wishing to give an account before the judge, they run and they hide. And man has been running from God ever since, from Adam in the garden to Jonah on the trip to, on the ship to Tarshish to David who wrote Psalm 139, verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? To you and to me. Sinners run and hide from a holy God because sin has introduced doubt in God's goodness, disbelief in God's word, conflict with God's order, and fear of God's nature. That's what's been introduced into our hearts. And so far in today's text, God has not said anything yet. All he's done is make a sound and start showing up. He hasn't actually said anything yet, so we get to that in verse 9. We get to the interrogation it begins in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now obviously, an omniscient God of the universe is not at a loss as to where Adam is. He's not trying to figure out, where are you? Not in that sort of way. God is asking these questions, all of these questions, for Adam's sake. God is saying, present yourself, Adam. And by doing this, he is helping Adam see what sin has done to himself. He's helping Adam see his own sin. He wants them to see what he sees. These interrogative questions of God, therefore, are gracious questions. This is a gracious interrogation. Though God is coming in judgment, he is also coming with gracious words. 
God is on a mission. In a sense, these words to Adam, where are you, are the first missionary words. These words are the words that launch redemptive history. A history that is not the story of fallen men in search of God, but the the opposite of that. It's the story of a holy God coming to seek out his lost sheep. That's what redemptive history shows us. God coming, initiating, seeking man. And it's obvious from Adam's response that he knows exactly why God is asking the question. Look at it. in, In response to the question, where are you? He doesn't say, over here. Verse 10 says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. In other words, he responds as if God had asked the question, why are you hiding? So Adam knows what God is after here. God's seeking to expose Adam's heart. But notice that Adam doesn't admit to anything wrong yet in his first answer. So we see yet another face of our fallen nature. Our inability to see and admit our own sin. Our inability to see and admit our own sin. Adam will talk about the condition he's in, but not the sin that led to it. But Adam's words, Adam has already been betrayed by his own words, for his mention of nakedness exposes his sin and exposes the fact that Adam's man-made remedy, the fig leaves, aren't working. He's not naked. He put fig leaves on. Yet when God asks where he's at, he's, "I'm, I'm naked. He knows the fig leaves aren't working. Adam still feels naked before God. Verse 11, so God responds, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God is reminding Adam now of the covenant. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? In other words, have you broken our covenant? Once again, God already knows this, but he is graciously and patiently pushing Adam to see his own sin and confess it. God, knowing all things, could have charged into that garden and simply pronounced a guilty verdict upon them, but graciously he doesn't. Like I said, this whole text is a a mingling of God's mercy and God's justice. Adam now knows that his fig leaves aren't hiding anything. They aren't working. And so he reluctantly and and quite evasively, I should say, confesses his sin And in doing so, we see the next great relational ruin brought about by the fall. So here's your next point in your notes. With the judge's interrogation, we see how mankind's relationship with mankind is ruined. Within mankind, with each other. Relationship with God, now relationship with mankind. Listen to Adam's response, verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So he does admit to it at the very end, and I ate. I can see him going, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and and, and I I ate. He's getting to that at the end, but he's he's finding a, he's setting himself up as the victim here. And yet another facet of our sinful nature is seen, namely that in our sin nature we refuse to take responsibility and we always shift responsibility to someone or something outside of us. That's what sinners do. We push the responsibility of our sin to something outside of us. From this point forward, man's relationship with the rest of mankind is ruined. Yes, it starts with the marital relationship, Okay, that's all there is in regards to human relationships at this point in history. But this enmity between man and man will spread to all human relationships. No sooner are there two more humans on the planet that one of them kills the other one. But here we see Adam, who failed to adequately communicate God's word to his wife, failed to lead her, failed to protect her, to cherish her. And now he just takes her and throws her under the proverbial bus. At the heart of divorce and any marital strife is the same sin. Anyone who has ever done any marriage counseling will tell you that the first thing that both spouses tend to say is, can you fix him or can you fix her? It's, in other words, his fault. It's her fault. The sinful nature has no desire to own its own sin and Eve is no different. God asks his next prosecutorial question to her. Verse 13. 
What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's not my fault. Yes, I ate it, but... Anyone in here who's a parent knows how deeply embedded that word but is in the, in the sinful nature. Johnny, did you hit your brother? Yes, but... There we go. Thank you for finishing the sentence, Rowan. All right. <coughs> Sally, did you take this? Yes, but there's always a reason. Blame shifting. We inherited, inherited it from our very first parents. As one person humorously said, Adam blamed the woman, the woman blamed the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Eve doesn't have another person to blame. Believe me, had there been another person to blame, she probably would have. So all she can do is blame it on the deception of Satan. Yet another facet of our sinful nature emerges. We don't like to admit that sin begins here in the sinful human heart. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. This is what James says. <coughs> James 1.13 let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And you may say, well, unlike what James says here, Adam nor the woman are saying they were tempted by God. But wait, that's exactly what they're saying. Look again at Adam's words. The woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. You, God, you are at the heart of all this. Had you not given me that woman, so again, we see here man's broken relationship with God, and now we see that our broken relationship with God is the foundation of all of our broken relationships with others. With Adam's silly defense, I think we see the deepest and the deadliest aspect of our sinful nature emerge. Namely, that sin is ultimately rebellion against and hatred toward God himself. That's the heart of it all right there. Sinful man hates God and blames him for everything, every evil, every problem. Even atheists, supposedly, who do not believe in God, their supposed unbelief is betrayed by the fact that they rail against God with the most vitriolic hatred. Atheists oddly expend a lot of energy blaming someone that they say is a fairy tale. All men instinctively know there is a God, and all men, by default, blame their sin on him. It's not my fault I'm attracted to the same sex. God made me that way. It's not my fault I'm angry. God gave me abusive parents. It's not my fault I'm anxious. God is putting me through one heck of a season in life right now. It's not my fault. It's God's fault. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe, and look what he's doing to me. So I can be excused for my sin. This life you gave me, God, that's why I'm doing all this. It's your fault. And that's at the heart of all of our sin. And so we see with God's interrogation, his prosecutorial questions, if you will, our sinful nature is exposed. And the brokenness of our relationships with God and man are put on display. And so in now verses now in verses 14 through 19 the narrative shifts to act 3. In the courtroom drama, we now have the sentencing. But before pronouncing a sentence upon man, God pronounces judgment on the snake. And that word of judgment is profoundly important. And so I want to come to it last. And I believe the reason for doing that, I can also justify from the structure of the text itself. But we'll get to that in a few moments. But let's look first at the curses that God places upon the woman and upon the man. We'll go down to verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. 
Now here again, we see grace mingled with the curse. For it's evident now from God's word and in light of verse 15, which we'll look at here in a, bit, in a minute, that the woman, though she died spiritually when she sinned, is not going to experience immediate physical death. She will have children, though they will come with pain. The word pain here in the Hebrew means more than physical pain. It can refer to worry or anxiety or hardship or grief. Though certainly the physical act of delivering children has been made painful, the idea here is that the whole work of childbearing from delivery to when they leave the home is going to be a difficult experience. In other words, parenting is now hard because of the fall. Again, we see the strain that sin causes on human-to-human relationships, especially on the family, but not just on parenting, on marriage as well. Verse 15, Uh, not verse 15, continuing in verse uh, 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, from the immediate context of Genesis, we are given an idea of what this word desire is. For God warns Cain later in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, it's the same word, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so the idea behind the word is domination, control, rule. Sin wanted to dominate Cain just as now in the post-fall condition, the woman is going to want to dominate her husband to control the man. Sin now leaves woman pushing against God's complementarian design for women. And sin affects not only the woman, for God says that also instead of, 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 the, of the man lovingly and selflessly leading, now he will rule over you. The fall has turned sacrificial leadership into sinful domination and it's turned her loving submission into sinful manipulation. That's what the fall has done to the marriage relationship. And then God turns to Adam, verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife, that is opposed to listening to his voice, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Again, here's a reminder of the covenant. Cursed is the ground because of you. And so I want us to see in your third point, with the judge's sentence, we see how mankind's relationship with creation is ruined. We see how mankind's relationship with creation is ruined. The very ground he was called to keep and cultivate is now cursed. Verse 17, in pain. Now that's the same word used earlier for pain and childbearing. So that means with difficulty, anxiety, hardship. Verse 17, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So the joyful work of subduing creation, of cultivating the garden, and of enjoying earth's produce has turned into painful, hard, anxious toil. That is because now creation itself is cursed, and it groans as a result of man breaking covenant with God. Isaiah 24, 4. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. The earth is reeling and groaning because we, in Adam, broke the covenant. Matthew, Hurricane Matthew, is a direct result of the fall. So when someone says, and you can say this theologically, did God cause that? Well, God is sovereign and rules the universe without question. But you can actually say, no, we caused that. Hurricane Matthew is your fault and my fault. Because we are in Adam and we sin. Hurricane Matthew is the result of creation languishing, withering under the broken covenant of man and God. And so God tells Adam, verse 19... By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. They disobeyed with their eating, and now it'll be hard to eat. But for how long? And he says it, verse 19. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So now we see the guarantee of physical death. Mankind died spiritually as a result of the fall. 
And mankind we see now is guaranteed physical death as a result of the fall as well. Now this would be a gloomy courtroom scene if it weren't for another one who is being sentenced. The devil himself, the accuser, that ancient serpent. So let's jump back to verses 14 through 15. And we'll see that through the judgment of the serpent, we have a gleaming and gracious promise. And this promise is actually the central focus of this whole courtroom drama. The structure of the text shows us that this is the central focus of the courtroom drama. This, this, the structure of, the, of when the interrogation begins and the judgments are given out is a chiasm. <coughs> I've explained a chiasm in the past. There's corresponding pairs. The first part corresponds with the last part of the text. The second part corresponds with the second to last part and so on. And so we see a chiasm in this structure. So let me, let me bring it up on the screen here and let's see if this worked out. Okay, well, the, the text, it's, it's a little bit off there, but you can follow with me. So first, there's the interrogation of man. That's verses 9 through 12. That corresponds with the very bottom of the chiasm, the sentence upon man, which is verses 17 through 19. Then we have the interrogation of the woman, verse 13. That corresponds with the sentence upon the woman in verse 16. And right in the middle of that chiasm, we have the sentence upon the serpent, which is verses 14 and 15. So when you have a chiasm like that, what it is doing is structurally drawing your attention to that center point. It's drawing your attention to what it believes, what God is saying is the centermost point of this text, the most important thing to focus on. And in this case, it's the judgment of the serpent. And you may be asking, why did God inspire Moses to draw our attention here to the judgment of the serpent? Because it is in the sentence upon the serpent that we have the first proclamation of the gospel. And so let me bring you our last point. With the judge's sentence, we see not only how mankind's relationship with creation is ruined, along with his relationship with God and his relationship with mankind, but in the judge's sentence, we see how mankind's relationships would be restored. Primarily, the relationship with God, which overflows into relationship with mankind and ultimately relationship with creation in the new heavens and the new earth. So let's jump back to verse 14 and notice that God has no questions for the snake. He questioned Adam. He questioned Eve. He has no questions for Satan. Adam and Eve, there was grace. There was grace in these questions as God's justice and mercy flow mingled down. But there is no grace for the snake, just judgment. Just a guarantee of destruction. Verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Now obviously Satan had somehow taken control of a snake. And so the curse is aimed spiritually at Satan. But it manifests itself physically in the snake. Verse, continuing in verse 14. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now we do not know... If this means, dogmatically, that the snake once stood on legs of some sort, like a, like a lizard or some commentators believe he stood upright. The text actually doesn't say that. It just merely says that on your belly you shall go. So it's, it's foolish to dogmatically say one way or the other whether or not the snake at one time had legs. There does seem to be some evidence, even from the fossil record and from the skeletal structure of snakes, that perhaps snakes at one time did have legs. But we cannot say Dogmatically, whether physical realities occurred at this point in the story simply underscore what, 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 I should say, whatever physical realities, and there are physical realities here, whatever physical realities occur at this point in the story simply underscore the spiritual reality of what's being said here. Going about in the dust was an image of disgrace and defeat. It's what it meant in the ancient world. To be in the dust was to be defeated, it was to be in disgrace. And God is saying that Satan, who as a snake rose up to strike mankind, is now being brought low in humiliating defeat. And the defeat is guaranteed, his power is limited, the snake was once crafty, but now he is cursed. There is no future for the snake, no redemption, only defeat. And how is that defeat secured? Adam was supposed to rule over the snake. He should have, the moment the snake popped onto the scene reached over said, Eve, don't believe those lies. Let me step on that thing. He didn't. Well, how is the snake defeated then? Well, that brings us to the first mention of the gospel in all the scriptures, Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head 
and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we could spend an entire sermon just on this passage of Scripture. But let me try to go through it quickly and bring the sermon in for a landing. Here at this point in redemptive history, we have two lineages that begin. Two families, two tribes that continues on to this very day. There's the offspring of Satan. Though man was created in the image of God, as an image bearer of God, Adam, as our representative head, plunged all mankind to rebellion. And after that, from the moment of birth, all men are born as part of the Satan family, as part of the enemy camp, rebels against God, imaging a different father, imaging a satanic father. But then there's another family, a remnant, those who from before the foundation of the world would be redeemed by the new Adam yet to come, a better representative. These are called the offspring of the woman. So the verse, first half of verse 15, I want you to notice something here. When it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, now that word is plural, offspring, and her offspring, plural. In other words, it's referring to corporately two groups of people, your offspring, her offspring. But then in the second half of verse 15, God shifts to the singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The fate of the world would hinge on a one-to-one battle between the man and the devil. The judgment from God is saying (coughs) that there would come a new representative, a new Adam, who would stand in the place of his people, and this new man would receive a strike on the heel from the serpent himself. And this strike, being a venomous one, would indeed strike this new representative, this new Adam, and that blow would cause him to die. But the new Adam is not like the old Adam. The new Adam had no sin. The new Adam transgressed no law. The new Adam broke no covenant. And so death could not hold him. That satanic venom could not destroy him. And he would rise from the dead and in doing so deliver a crushing blow to the head of that serpent, that ancient serpent. The new Adam, of course, is the son of God who took on flesh to be the God-man, Jesus the Christ, who would stand in the place of his people. And though he lived a perfectly righteous life, never sinned, he took the sin of his people as a curse upon his own shoulders, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? Becoming a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is how we reconcile Exodus 34, God forgives, yet he does not overlook sin because he places the sin of all whom he forgives on the shoulders of his son and he executes judgment on his own son. And so that he, God, through his own son, Romans 3.26 says, he becomes the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. The motifs of today's story are all seen in the death of Christ. Toil, sweat, thorns, conflict, tree, death, culminating with our Lord Jesus Christ being laid into the dust of the earth. But in his sacrifice and his subsequent resurrection, he triumphed over the snake. And now all who put their faith in his perfect snake-crushing, skull-crushing work will be saved. Now, we can't get to it now, but the remainder of this chapter, we see evidence that Adam and Eve did have faith and that God did in advance apply the blood of his son to their account. But we'll get to that next week. For those who have already put their hope and their faith in the skull-crushing king of kings, King Jesus, you need to know that by virtue of your union with him, one of the songs we, we sang talked about being hidden in Christ, by virtue of your union with him, guess what? You're a skull crusher too. Romans 16, 20, the verse that we ended last week with with our benediction, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's because Christ's foot is now yours. Oh, believer, that is you this morning. Stop walking in the sinful ways you inherited from your father, Adam, because you have a new father. There's a new Adam. And by his work on the cross, he's giving you a new nature so that you can Fight this sin. But unbelieving friend here in, the mor- here in this room this morning, I beg you to stop dressing in fig leaves. 
Stop trying to deal with your guilty conscience through man-made means. I beg you to stop running from God and stop hiding from Him. He has come to you this morning through this word this morning, and He's asking, where are you? He is calling you out to come and to confess your sin, to turn from your transgressions and believe in the promises of Genesis 3, 15. That he has provided a new representative, a new Adam for you, if you'll simply place your faith in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I can't help but feel a heavy burden that this text that we looked at today is too big for us. It's too big for me. I feel like such a moron trying to preach such glorious words. So, God, Father, we ask your Holy Spirit wind to blow into our hearts the truth of this text so that it will affect us deeply. And if there be any in here who have a cold dead, unbelieving, hard heart. Lord, I pray that that wind would break that rock into pieces and that new life would spring forward and that today we would have a new member of the Jesus tribe, of the offspring of the woman. But Lord, only you can do that work as we ask you to do it. And Lord, we ask you to help us see that we, we no longer live enslaved to the things that we saw emerge from Adam and Eve today. Yes, they're there. It's still indwelling. But we've been given grace to kill it. As God help us to kill sin. And as we approach that final sanctification, as we are growing in, our, in the grace that you give us, and we are becoming more like Christ day in and day out, Lord, we believe there will be a day when that skull-crushing work which is already done, but yet still being done, we look forward to the day when our foot finally hits the floor and Satan's head is crushed underfoot and we no longer battle sin. But until that day, give us grace. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being our snake-crushing king. Without you, without you, we are lost. We're lost. And we're hiding behind fig leaves. So Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your word. Pray now that you be with us as we think about the words of this next song. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.